This morning, we're going to interrupt the sermon series through the book of Acts for an occasional topical sermon in anticipation of the celebration of Independence Day tomorrow. So I ask you to turn in your Bible or in the Pew Bible to the first letter of Peter for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word in 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 9. Let us ask the Lord, whose Spirit breathed out this holy word and preserved it for us in Scripture, now to breathe upon us afresh, to give spiritual illumination to our minds and to open our hearts to receive his word in faith. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that your Son, our Savior, Jesus, is the King at your right hand and that through him you would send forth the Holy Spirit upon us afresh and anew so that we might hear the voice of our Sovereign speaking to us and grant us faith to receive it and to respond to it as loyal subjects and citizens of your eternal kingdom. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Second Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, this is the word of God. It is written, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is, the unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And now to him who loves us and by whose blood our sins are cleansed, to Jesus Christ be all glory, honor, power, and praise forever and ever. Amen. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, 
that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <coughs> the opening sentences of the Declaration of Independence still stir the hearts of freedom-loving people everywhere after 246 years. But today, the United States of America is in distress because the principles and precepts upon which this nation was founded and which informed the writing of the Constitution are being attacked and undermined. Now, I don't intend for this sermon today to be either merely a history lesson or a political science lecture. No, but if we as Christians are to have any real understanding of this nation's current troubles, it is necessary for us to know something of our history and the influence which the Christian faith pl played in the founding of this nation. Now, of course, there were other strong philosophical influences which flowed out of the non-Christian Enlightenment rationalism. Non-Christian Enlightenment rationalism, yes, was at play at this time in American history. And not all of the founders were thoroughgoing, Bible-believing Christians. Men such as Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were actually what we might call moralistic or philosophical Unitarians. They were non-Trinitarians, but they were theists. They believed in a living God who actually intervened in the affairs of humanity and whose character, wisdom, power, righteousness, justice, and truth comported with the character of the true and living God revealed in the Bible. Their general idea of God, if we may put it like that, was shaped by the Bible even if they didn't believe the doctrines of biblical Christianity. So even among those who were not Bible-believing Christians, such as Thomas Jefferson, we have quotations which ring with biblical truth. For example, Jefferson wrote, God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that His justice cannot sleep forever. It sounds very biblical. And the point here is that although not all of the founders were true Christians, nevertheless, all the founders of this nation understood that matters of political liberty, truth, and justice, the great ideals of freedom, are ultimately rooted in the transcendent and eternal being of God the Creator. And so the closing words of the Declaration of Independence declare with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. 
Therefore, it is not too much to say, it is not too much to say that if the founders of this nation, even the non-Christians, if they had not had a biblical understanding of human nature, that is, of fallen man's lust for power, and a biblical view of political science, the rule of law and the limitation of human political power, and a biblical understanding of individual and political liberty, that liberty and rights are given by God, not by men, and a biblical belief in the providence and judgment of Almighty God. If they had not believed in those principles and precepts, then the United States of America either would not exist at all today or certainly would not exist as we know it today as a constitutional republic with representative government, with division of powers for checks and balances, and with God-given rights for individual liberty. Now, Christians of all denominations, Protestants and Roman Catholics, supported the revolution. But it was the Calvinists, the Presbyterians, who played an indispensable role in the American Revolution and the founding of this nation. So paying respect to Christians of other denominations who also participated in the revolution, we want to do a little Presbyterian history here as well. The American Revolution was perceived by the British and called by the British a Presbyterian rebellion. The saying was that the American colonies had run off with a Presbyterian parson. Namely, the Reverend John Witherspoon, who was one of 12 Presbyterians and the only clergyman who signed the Declaration. He was, at the time, president of the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University. And at that institution, Witherspoon, a Presbyterian minister, theologian, taught James Madison and eight other drafters of the Constitution. And under Witherspoon, Madison and his fellow students would have learned not only Calvinist theological doctrine, but also how that theological doctrine translates into political science. Another example, in 1776, Hanover Presbytery in Virginia was the first religious body in America to recognize openly the Declaration of Independence and to align itself as a church body with the cause of freedom. Now, whoever said that religion has nothing to do with politics? Probably someone who's never read the Bible or much history or more likely... Today, someone who actually fears the influence of Christian faith in the public realm. It is a simple fact of history that the United States Constitution is patterned on the form of government of the Presbyterian Church, which had come to the colonies from Scotland including such fundamental points as representative government in ascending levels of jurisdiction, 
and the checks and balances built into the three branches of government. Now on that point of the three branches of government, do you remember your ninth grade civics class? Why do we need three branches of government? For a system of checks and balances. Why do we need a system of checks and balances? Very simply, the doctrine of total depravity. The first point in the five points of Calvinism. Every human being is corrupted by sin in every capacity and therefore every human institution is corrupted by sin and therefore every human government needs to have a built-in check and balance to restrain the power of corruption and to restrain the corruption of power. The Constitution of the United States, and, and by the way, Evidently, there are those in our nation today who would just do away with the checks and balances to get what they want. The Constitution of the United States is Presbyterian also in the sense that it constitutes a representative government, a republic, neither a monarchy ruled by a king, nor an oligarchy ruled by an elite, nor a pure democracy. Isn't that interesting? Well, as a matter of fact, in the 16th century, John Calvin wrote that, quote, a mixture of aristocracy and democracy far excels all other forms of government. Calvin's and the reason for that is there's no one human being who ought to be, who is good enough and wise enough to be invested with all the power. And on the other hand, if you turn the power over simply to the masses in a pure democracy, you're going to end up with chaos and anarchy. We're, we're tilting one way or the other these days in the nation. But Calvin's vision of a civil government formed as a mixture of aristocracy and democracy became a reality, of course, in the Republic of the United States of America. Now, Calvin may not have been the, the first or the only one to favor a, a republic, but it is an historical fact that Calvin's theological and political thought that then came through John Knox, Scotland, to the, to the colonies, and to northern European Calvinists, to the northern, northeastern colonies, and so forth. It provided the foundation of the Constitution of the United States, so much so that Calvin has been regarded by some historians as the virtual founder of the United States. Now, Calvin and his students at the time of the Revolution would remind us today, brothers and sisters, that the Bible and the Christian faith have to do with not only, not only 
our own private, personal, individual, spiritual life or religious experience, but also the common good in the public realm and with truth and righteousness and justice in human society, indeed, with civil government as ordained and instituted by God for the protection of human life, the preservation of peace in society, the restraint and punishment of evildoers, and the rewarding of those of good behavior. And we can be sure that the others who signed the declaration, including those who would have rejected Calvinist theology, they all would have eagerly, enthusiastically agreed with John Calvin who wrote that, quote, apart from the fear of God, men do not preserve equity and love among themselves. Apart from the fear of God, men do not preserve equity and love among themselves. Now, the history of Calvinism at the time of the American Revolution might raise some questions in your minds, such as, well, what about Romans 13? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. What about the passage we read from 1 Peter? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, Fear God, honor the emperor. So, how then could Bible-believing Christians support and participate in an armed rebellion against the British monarchy? Well, again, you can blame the Presbyterians for that or give credit where credit is due. The Presbyterians and other Calvinists and other Christians who supported the revolution believed the Bible and understood the theological issues at stake. They were not anarchists. They were not anarchists, as were the revolutionaries in France, for example, during the French Revolution. The Christians who participated in the overthrow of the British monarchy were not anarchists. They knew that they had to have a theological justification for the revolution. And that's the reason that the Declaration of Independence, after the beautiful opening sentences, then refers to a long, quote, a long train of abuses and usurpations listing the actions of King George, which proved him to be no longer a rightful king, but an absolute despot, a tyrant. And it's worth Googling up the declaration and reading the justification for the American rebellion. 
And at the conclusion of this list of abuses by King George, the declaration states, quote, a prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. On that basis, the signers of the Declaration, including the Christians, made their argument that it was not only, and this is in the words of the Declaration, it was not only their right, but also the duty of the people, the duty, the right and duty of the people to overthrow the tyranny of the British monarchy. Brothers and sisters, that was a theological argument. We can trace this line of thought, theological, political science, back to a Scottish Presbyterian theologian named Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford was one of the Scottish Presbyterian ministers, theologians, who contributed to the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Some of you know about the Westminster Assembly and the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith, our doctrinal standard. Samuel Rutherford was one of them. In 1644, 1644, during the same time that the Westminster Confession was being written, Samuel Rutherford published a book entitled Lex Rex. Lex Rex. That Latin title, Lex Rex, law, king, can be understood to convey this idea. The Lex Rex, the law before the king or the law above the king, meaning the king must obey the law, or simply the law is king. The law is king as opposed to the king is law. See the difference? And Rutherford's book is the source from which we get the foundational principle of the rule of law. Ever heard that expression? The rule of law? It goes back to Samuel Rutherford. The rule of law as opposed to the rule of men. And so, for example, John Adams wrote into the 1780 Massachusetts Constitution that it was to be a government of laws and not of men. We can thank the Scottish Presbyterian Samuel Rutherford for that. <laughs> And it, 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 um, it casts a light, a light on current events, does it not? Where we, some, would rather be ruled by men in order to get what they want. But in his book, the Presbyterian Rutherford developed, therefore, the biblically-based doctrine of resistance to tyrants, basically as a category of self-defense. And thus, the Declaration of Independence expressed the right and duty 
of the colonies to throw off the monarchy. Thomas Jefferson himself embraced the idea and had as his epitaph, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. It all goes back to Rutherford. Now, so when we read passages such as Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 calling for submission to the authorities, we must remember a few things. Let's first of all look at uh, this passage in its entire context. It begins by addressing the church of Jesus Christ and referring to the church of Jesus Christ which is comprised of believers of every tribe and tongue and nation, the worldwide church of Jesus Christ as a holy nation. That means, first of all, we understand that our citizenship is, the, is in the kingdom of God and Jesus is our king. Secondly, in the next paragraph, we are called as we live as citizens of heaven now on earth, we are to conduct our way, our, ourselves, in our lives among the unbelieving society in an honorable way so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and you better believe that they are speaking against you Christians as evildoers today, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, we the church of Jesus Christ are the embassy of the kingdom of God on earth. We represent the king of heaven and earth in our life in these United States of America and we are to conduct ourselves in that way. And then when it calls us to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, yes, we must respect and submit to the civil authority when it is acting in its rightful sphere or jurisdiction. And we are to honor the office, whether we personally like or prefer the person in office, or not. And as long as the government is acting in its rightful, lawful sphere or justification, we are to live in submission to it. But the authority of the state, civil government, is not absolute. The authority of the state, human government, has its limits for the Christian obedience to the civil authority has its limit because our king is King Jesus. When the apostle Peter was forbidden to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, he declared this principle, we must obey God rather than men. That is still the case today. I don't know how it's going to play out in the short-term future, but get ready, we must obey God rather than men. That is the rule. If the civil government 
overreaches its rightful sphere and jurisdiction and compels us to do something clearly contrary to the law of God, we must obey God rather than men. When the state forbids us to do something clearly commanded by the law of God, worship Him on the Lord's day in a gathered assembly, for example, we must obey God rather than men. Our highest and supreme allegiance is pledged to King Jesus. And as long as we've got that hierarchy in the right order, then yes, we are to give honor to whom honor is due with regard to the civil authorities. But there's another point as well, and it's very important for us Americans today. Please understand, when we read 1 Peter, honor the emperor, we need to remember that in terms of, listen carefully now, listen carefully. In terms of human civil government, in terms of human civil government in the United States of America, our emperor is not a man or a woman. Our emperor is not the president or the governor or the Congress, or the Supreme Court. Now again, these authorities are to be respected due to their office as they act in their rightful sphere. But in terms of civil government, in terms of human government, as 21st century Americans, our emperor is what? What? The Constitution of the United States of America. That's the supreme civil authority. We are a nation governed by laws, not by men and women. And all elected officials are accountable to the Constitution. And part of being a good and patriotic citizen and the best way to, for Christians to honor the emperor is to hold our politicians accountable to the Constitution and to elect politicians whom we believe will truly defend and uphold the Constitution and resist those who intend to shred the Constitution. And we must be vigilant because there are powerful people in America today who would ignore, defy, or shred the Constitution in order to wield their power over us. And they would destroy the checks and balances built into the three branches of government so as to tyrannize us. Let us commit ourselves to obey God and His law rather than men. But, my fellow Americans, let us never forget that the greatest and most important revolution that has ever occurred and will ever occur in the history of the world was not the American Revolution, but rather the revolution that took place through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. As the Scots Confession of 1560, that's John Knox and others who founded the church, of Scotland, 
As the Scots Confession says, now listen to this. <laughs> you're you're going to love this. The Scots Confession, remember Witherspoon, Scottish Presbyterian minister? The Scots Confession of 1560 says that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has purchased for us life, liberty, and perpetual victory. You reckon Samuel Witherspoon whispered a little suggestion into Jefferson's ear? I think maybe so. God has purchased for us life, liberty, and perpetual victory. And Jesus' ascension into heaven, His exaltation at the right hand of God the Father Almighty with the name and the authority that is above every name that can be named and every power in heaven and on earth means that He alone has an absolute claim upon our lives. And to Him alone, above all others, we must pledge our first and full and highest allegiance with joy, with courage, with gladness, with eternal gratitude. Nations rise and fall, but His kingdom is forever. Jesus is Lord. Have you bowed your knee to Him? Have you sworn the fealty of your heart to Him, King of kings and ruler of the kings on earth? He reigns in heaven over all and is subduing all His enemies. Have you freely given your heart to Him so that you willingly and gladly submit to His reign as He sits upon the throne of your heart? Have you bowed the knee and pledged your first and full allegiance to the King who by His sacrificial death and victorious resurrection has won life, liberty, and eternal happiness for you. Are you a glad and willing subject and citizen of His kingdom? This Independence Day, let us give thanks for the history of this nation indeed. Let us give thanks for the blessings of liberty we enjoy indeed. Let us Beseech God, implore the Almighty for a restoration of the foundations and the reformation of the United States of America according to His Word. But let us all on National Independence Day declare our dependence. Let us boldly declare our complete, absolute, and total dependence upon King Jesus and pledge to Him our first, full, and highest allegiance to the glory of His name. Amen. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks 
for your word of life and truth and liberty in Jesus Christ. And we pray that your word would strengthen our hearts and enable us now more faithfully to live as ambassadors of your eternal kingdom in these United States of America. For the glory of your name in every nation throughout all the earth. Through Jesus Christ our King. Amen. In response to the word of God, let us stand to affirm our faith. This comes from chapter 1 of the Scots Confession of 1560. We confess and acknowledge one God to whom alone we must flee, whom alone we must serve, whom only we must worship, and in whom alone we put our trust, who is eternal, infinite, immeasurable, incomprehensible, omnipotent, invisible, one in substance and yet distinct in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, by whom we confess and believe all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, to have been created, to be retained in their being, and to be ruled and guided by his inscrutable providence, for such end as his eternal wisdom, goodness, and justice are to and to the man